book of Exodus, chapter 15. And we'll read verses 22 through 27. The book of Exodus, chapter 15. The context of this uh, verse, this passage that I want to read, of course, the context of this section is the miraculous deliverance from Egypt. We looked last week at the Red Sea conquest. These people were uh, pressed against the sea and the Egyptians were bearing down on them. And uh, God, in a miraculous miracle of power, separated the water in an event that is comparable to the resurrection in the New Testament. I, I need to mention this because I think it's significant. Mention it again that what happened at the Red Sea is something like what happened in the resurrection. It was the great miracle of the Old Testament. And when um, the writers of the Old Testament referred to miracles, they didn't really refer to um, all of those events that took place that we are so familiar with that relate to Abraham and and to Isaac and Jacob, to David, what they refer to the miracle of the Red Sea. And it is the um, great um, watershed of the miracles of the Old Testament. And when they were delivered through this um, Red Sea and, and, and rescued, then the waters, of course, you know the story, covered the Egyptians. And they broke out in song. They sang a song to the Lord. Now this song, is, uh, as you remember, uh, was significant for two reasons. One was because it was a song sung to God. It was the first expression of praise in the Old Testament recorded. First poem ever written. First song ever written. And it was a song directed to God. And it was a a shout of praise and worship. The second thing that was significant about this song was its content. It was totally occupied with, with, with God. It was a song about Him. Twelve times the word Lord is mentioned. Thirty-three times the pronouns He, Him, and, and You are mentioned. And it is a song that's filled with the glory of God. And it gives us some kind of an example of what should happen, I think, in worship. That what we sing, we sing the Lord. And what we sing should have at least in content that which praises God and glorifies Him. Now, after this event, this song, God led them into the wilderness, and here's what happened. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now three days have elapsed. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and a regulation, and there he tested them. 
And he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight and give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians. For I, the Lord, am your healer. Then they came to Elam where there were twelve springs of water and seventy date palms. And they camped there beside the waters. I read an amazing uh, statistic the other day. Um, it is estimated that every year in America there are at least a thousand ministers, both men and women, who leave the ministry. A thousand a year. Now, I don't know why this happens. I don't know why it's true. There are probably um, several reasons, mitigating circumstances, as to why people are leaving the ministry by the thousands. But I have a feeling that the, the primary reason is discouragement. Now, there are a lot of reasons why that a person might want to leave the ministry. One is pay, you know, for one, for one example. And uh, some, one guy said he, he left the ministry because of uh, poor health. People were sick of him. And uh, <laughs> so, so he left the ministry. <clears throat> but for whatever reason, people quit the ministry. I have a feeling that the predominant reason is that we get discouraged. I, uh, when I was working in the Northwest, I, I, I worked with a lot of ministers up in, you know, on setting up uh, revival meetings and crusades and trying to help start missions. A guy told me one time, he said, the guys who come up to the Northwest to preach, they, they stay on an average of 14 months. And he said, if they get beyond this 14 months, he said, most of them stay for a lifetime. But he, said, but, but he said, the great majority of them quit in 14 months or less. And he said, a lot of the problem is, he said, you know, they come up here and they come from the South and they have these idealistic dreams about, you know, mission field, etc. And he said, they go into the wintertime in the Northwest. And if you've been in, the, you've been in Oregon or Western Canada or, or, or Washington, in the wintertime, the sun never shines, never see it. And if you want to live for about three months with what we've had last week, where you never see the sun, that's the way it is. He said, and the days are short, and the nights are long, and the days are dark and dreary. And he said, most of the guys just get discouraged, and they head for home. They can't stand it. I suppose that the greatest weapon that Satan has is discouragement. And if he wants to defeat us, he, if he has a device that will defeat us and our witness, get us out of the work, cause us to quit, give up, throw up our hands, it's the weapon of discouragement. We've all known that. We've experienced it. Some perhaps, you know, in your ministry here or as a parent or as a, as a church leader, you just get so discouraged, you just want to throw up your hands and quit. Now, I, is that true? Isn't that true? Discouragement is something... We all have to deal with. Now, I don't know how, why it is that we get discouraged, except probably because we're often disappointed. And things don't turn out like we thought they might. In fact, we don't know how they're going to turn out. And when they don't turn out like we hoped they would, then we get discouraged. We're disappointed, and discouragement comes. Now, it seems incredible to me that after um, what these people had seen God do in Egypt and at the Red Sea, 
that they would ever, ever be discouraged. Three days later, they're ready to go back to Egypt. Can you believe that? Sounds like somebody you know, doesn't it? Now, there are some defenses against discouragement. I want to suggest three to you tonight, and you might want to jot them down. You might not. The first is this. <clears throat> we need to recognize that the greatest successes of life are often followed by failure. We need to recognize that the greatest successes of life are often followed by failure. Now get this picture, if you will. Use a little imagination. These people are brought to the Red, to the, to the Red Sea and they're being pursued by the Egyptians. All of a sudden the sea parts and they go across on dry land and the Egyptians are swallowed up in the, in the sea and all of them are drowned. And as these bodies wash ashore, I just have an idea that some of those people stood there and looked at those bodies and may have said something like this. I recognize him. He was a taskmaster who beat me every day. Another man might have said, I, I know him. I recognize him. He took my firstborn child and killed it right in my presence. And another man stands with a bowed head and he looks and he says, Yes, and I know him. He raped my wife and destroyed her. I never will be able to get over it. And if you'd have walked in on that scene and had seen what was going on around that, that uh, sea of Red, the, uh, the Red Sea, you might have said, these people are fixed for life. They're standing here in the midst of this, the greatest miracle that has ever occurred, and these people have evidently have the hand of God upon them and they are forever fixed. It'll never be that anything will ever come to them again. There is a spiritual principle, however, and this is the spiritual principle, that the greatest experiences of victory are often followed by devastating failure. Now the Bible is full of illustrations. Let me give you two or three. One is the illustration of Elijah. This prophet of God decided, and we have all these places where people worship the God of Baal. Let's just put God, our God Jehovah to the test, and let's put your gods to the test. So they had this great meeting on top of Mount Carmel. And Elijah was strutting around up there with these prophets of Baal. He said, okay, call on your God and have him send fire and consume this altar. And these prophets of Baal, they, they cried all day long to their God, cut themselves, mutilated themselves. And Elijah was over here mocking them and said, well, he must be on vacation. He must be out of you know, he must be out of town today. And they said a few other things that I'll not, he said a few other things that I'll not mention. Some of you are grinning because you already read that in the Living Bible. <laughs> and he mocked these prophets all day long. And finally he said, okay, nothing's happened. Let's prove God. And so he, he just, you know, built a trench around the altar and covered it and soaked the altar and then called on his God and fire fell. And there's old Elijah, you know, I mean, in the, in the presence of a fiery God. Nothing will ever, ever discourage this man again. It's just a matter of hours, and Elijah's on the run. 
And he runs all the way down to the Negev Desert. In fact, the Bible says he runs ahead of the chariots. I mean, this is the world's record marathon. He ran faster than the horses. Jezebel was after him, and he was hooking it. He went all the way out into the Negev Desert, which is about 22 miles, crawled up under a juniper tree in the, in the uh, uh, prenatal position and asked God to kill him. Now, that's a strange thing, but oftentimes failure follows success. The 16th chapter of the book of Matthew, Jesus says to Simon Peter, do you, who do you say that I am? He said, I, we say you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, well, blessed are you, Simon. You've not said this of your own uh, capacity and ability. God has revealed it to you. The next moment, Jesus is saying to Simon Peter, get behind me, Satan. The 12th chapter of uh, the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul said, I had this experience into the, into the third heaven. There are many people who believe that he died and went to heaven literally. And then Paul says, lest this revelation exalt me, God sent a thorn to my flesh. Oftentimes, success is followed by failure. For what happens when we have some great spiritual experience? We think we're experts. We have all the answers. And God allows these failures to come into our life for the sake of our own humility. The interesting thing is that if you get a map of ancient Israel and you look for the, 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 the name Mara, this place where they came to, you'll not find it's on the route that they were on. As a matter of fact, it's off the beaten path. They weren't going there. God led them there. Now listen to this very carefully. Sometimes when you come to the bitter experiences of life, you're not out of the will of God. You may be directly in the will of God. And the Lord brings us to these bitter experiences for three reasons. One is, is because it, He uses discouragement and disappointment to prove us. <clears throat> I'm going to try to make it through here tonight. I'm not doing the best job with this uh, bad cold. I've had 50,000 home remedies suggested to me. and I, I, uh, I've even had some people say, if you've got a sore throat, you know, you just bleed. They talk about bleeders. Cut your throat, let it bleed. That kind of, oh, that's not going to work, is it? <laughs> well, I'm going to try to make it through this. He uses discouragement to prove us. Now watch this. It's not hard to trust in God when God is parting seas and sending down fire from heaven. And the proving ground of one's faith is not at the Red Sea or on Mount Carmel when God is raining down fire. I'll tell you, anybody can believe that. The proving ground of one's faith is in the day-by-day necessities of life. It's when you need the next drink of water and there's no water to drink. That's where your faith is proven. It's when you come to the bitter experiences of life and you still trust Him. That's where faith is proven. 
It's when you get to the where you want to quit and you don't, that's where your faith is proven. It's when you come to the place in life where you don't have enough money to pay the next bill and you still trust Him, that's when your faith is proven. So God uses these disappointments in life and this discouragement in life to prove our faith that I can keep on believing even in the bitter moments of life. Second, He brings us tomorrow because He uses disappointments to prepare us, not just to prove us, but to prepare us. Because if you read the next chapter, the next chapter, it gets worse. The next chapter, they don't have anything to eat. And I have discovered um, in, the, in, in, in my own life and in the lives of other people that a lot of times, usually, many times, when I go through bitter experiences of disappointment and discouragement, it's usually in preparation for something that's going to get worse. I tell you that, it's not going to get better, it's going to get worse. I, uh, y'all, y'all remember Frank Wade? Y'all remember him? Big guy, loved the Lord. Now this church has changed so much in the last eight or ten years. It's amazing the change that this church has experienced. Many of you don't even know who what Frank Wade was or is. He's, he's dead now. But he's this great big old giant of a man who loved the Lord and he he worked in the nursery in our church, and he always sat right over there where Ed uh, Lee is sitting. Great big old guy. And his mother and father lived over in Arkansas. They lived around, I think it's Jonesboro, Arkansas, and his father was, uh, was ill, uh, quite ill. And, and the summertime came, and, and, and Frank and his wife and children, they, they went back and forth over to Arkansas to, to uh, take care of his father. And his father... Um, was, um, you know, dying, really. He had uh, some terrible heart condition and was dying. And Frank was going over there to take care of him, and they just were expecting his death any moment. One day over in Arkansas, this man, 45 years old, Frank Wade, taking care of his father, died instantly of a heart attack. And I went over to Jonesboro to preach his funeral. I flew over to Jonesboro. Dr. Gold and Dr. Hibbs and some of us went over there. To, I went down to Jonesboro to preach his funeral. And when I walked in the house, this is what his wife told me. She said, Gerald, we were coming over here to um, take care of Frank's father, thinking that what we were doing was taking care of Frank's father. Really what was happening was that God was getting me and my children prepared for Frank's death. You know what she was saying? She was saying, we came to this bitter experience in life in order that we might be prepared for the real thing. God uses disappointment to prepare us for tough times. The third thing He uses disappointments to do is to purify us. Now he said, I'm going to tell you how to keep from these plagues that came to the Egyptians. I'm going to tell you how that that will not happen to you. Now if you keep my statutes and you obey my commandments and you follow my covenant, you will not have those plagues come to you. The implication is that if you don't keep the commandment and if you don't obey my statutes 
and follow the covenant, the promises we've made to one another, then you're going to fall into the same suffering that the Egyptians experienced. Now, is it not true that the disappointing experiences of life, the bitter experiences of life, often not only remind us of what is important, but they bring us closer to God and experiences themselves purify us of all the stuff in life that's contrary to the will of God. All right, that's first point. The su successes in life are often followed by failure. Second, <clears throat> the greatest successes of life are often followed by forgetfulness. It's what John K. Claypool calls the wages of amnesia. <laughs> the wages of amnesia. How soon we forget. Three days into the wilderness, and they've forgotten what had happened before. And so they, um, they begin to murmur, and they took it out on the preacher. And they grumbled against uh, Moses, right at the preacher. But, but Moses didn't take that personally. In fact, in chapter 16, verse 8, he's talking to God. It's kind of humorous. He said, God, they're griping at me, but they're really not griping at me. They got a problem with you, and I'm just caught in the backfire here. I'm just caught in the crossfire. Most of the time, when we complain, it's not because we have a problem with others. It's just that we got a problem with God we need to work out. And Moses didn't take it personally, and he didn't take it out on the people. And he, you'll never find Moses turning against the people. Even in the places of bitterness, he didn't, he, 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 he didn't take it out on the people. What he did was he took it to the Lord. Now listen to me carefully. There are two kinds of people here tonight. There are those of you who complain, and then there are those of you who cry out to God. I want to show you something interesting. When he cries out to the Lord, the Lord shows him a tree. Now look at this. Let's look at that again. It's verse 25. Then he cried out to the Lord. He prayed, and the Lord showed him a tree. The implication of that is the tree was there all along. He just didn't see it. And when he cried out to the Lord, the Lord showed him the tree had been there all along. In other words, when he took this matter that brought tremendous pain and bitterness and heartache, disappointment, discouragement, when he took that to the Lord, he got a whole new perspective on what was going on around him. Prayer does that, you know. Now, sometimes prayer changes circumstances, but a lot of times it doesn't. I know people who've been praying about something for years and changed a thing. The only thing, as far as the circumstances is concerned, the only thing that's changed is the perspective they have on everything. It shows them a tree, you know. Now, I, th I want you to see this. When he showed them this tree that was there all along, when he gave them this perspective that comes from prayer, that tree he used, he threw the tree or the tree went into the water and the water became sweet. I want to try to say something profound. Everybody, every sermon will have something, at least something profound in it. 
Here, here's the something profound. In the midst of the most bitter experiences, He'll show you something that will make it sweet. I'm kind of proud of that statement, so <coughs> we'll write that down. In the, in, the, in the most bitter experiences, He'll show you something that'll make that sweet. Now let me show you what I'm talking about. It doesn't matter what you go through, if you trust in God and you call on God, He'll show you something out of that that's sweet. That's good. Now, bless you. Now, the, there is a, uh, there's a little article I read this week by Nancy DeMoss. And Nancy DeMoss was writing about a woman you'll recognize. Now listen to this statement. Listen to this. By today's standards, she should have been a very unhappy, troubled woman. Her father, when she was quite young, leaving, died when she was quite young, leaving her to be raised by her mother and her grandmother. As a result of a doctor's careless era when she was only six years old, she was afflicted with lifelong blindness. The tragic and traumatic experience of this woman's childhood years would have given most people more than enough grounds for a lifetime of self-pity, bitterness, and psychological disorders. Yet in her autobiography, I'll leave the name out, you fill it in later, she wrote, It seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life, and I thank Him for the dispensation. The doctor who destroyed her eyesight was so overwhelmed, overcome by what he had done, he moved out of the area. And yet this woman's heart, in this woman's heart, there was no resentment. If I could meet him now, she wrote, I would say, thank you, thank you over and over again for making me blind. The blindness that many would have considered at best an accident and at worst a curse was considered by this woman to be one of her greatest blessings. She accepted her blindness as a gift from God. I could not have written thousands of hymns, she said, if I had, seen, if I had been hindered by the distraction of seeing all the interesting and beautiful objects that have, would, that have been presented to my notice. Her first poem, written when she was eight years old, 95. Listen to this poem. Oh, what a happy child I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. So weep or sigh because I'm blind. I cannot nor I want. And so for, all, for over a century, the church has reaped the rich benefits of one woman's thankful heart as we sing, To God be the glory, blessed assurance, redeemed, all the way my Savior leads me. And Fanny Crosby wrote 8,000 songs. For in the bitterness of her life, God showed her something there all along that even this thing, this terrible thing she had to live through was indeed a source of sweet blessing. Point number three, and then we're out of here. The shortages of life 
are always followed by fullness. Now look at verse 27. Then they came to Elam. They kept on going till they came to Elam. You're going to meet obstacles. The devil's going to make sure of that. He's going to wage war against you. You're going to get discouraged. What do you do? Just keep on going. Keep on obeying. Because right over the hill, right around the next corner, there's Elam. Now, I I looked at this for a a long time, and um, uh, I thought, well, there's got to be something significant in the fact that he numbers 12 springs, 70 date palms. I mean, you don't just go out in the desert and count date palms, do you? I think I know the answer to this. There were 12 springs, 12 tribes, one spring for every tribe. And there were 70 elders, if you'll notice how God dealt with Moses and and the government of his people, there were 70 elders, one palm tree for every elder. You know what that says to me? It says to me that even though God leads us through bitter experiences, He always gives us more than we expect. I mean, one spring. You'd expect maybe that God would lead them to a place where there'd be one spring of water, but 12 in the middle of the desert? Come on. You might expect that God would find some little old scrub bush where there'd be a little shade, but an oasis of 70 palms where every elder in the city could sit under and find shade. That's the way God is, isn't He? is that He just brings us through these experiences to blessing on top of blessing. Job is the proof of that. For when the bitter experience was over, he looked around and found that he had more than he'd ever lost because God is so gracious and good. And they camped there But they didn't stay there. And God fed them, and that's the cycle. That He keeps bringing us and leading us through the desert, and He bringing us through the test until we pass. Let's pray together. (coughs) Our Father, we feel somewhat discouraged. There's not a person here, Lord, that has not felt that. And the discouragement that comes because of the failure of others, because of our own mistakes. Lord, there are experiences of life that we would not choose for ourselves, bitter to taste. Help us to see the tree there that makes these experiences sweet and blessed. And help us to trust you, Lord, in the wilderness. To follow you when 
it, feel, it feels like that we shouldn't. So our faith can pass the test. Lord, I pray that you'll bind us to your dear heart, your purpose. Forgive us where we drift astray. For I pray in Jesus' name. I wonder if there's somebody here tonight who would like to to make public a decision you feel in your heart to make. Whatever God leads you to do, we would pray you would be willing to do it, courageous enough to do it. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.